Psalm 51, the first verse, this is God's holy word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered. On your altar, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, beloved, we've come to the last two verses of Psalm 51. And in this psalm, the Holy Spirit has given us a rare privilege and experience. We've been allowed into someone's heart, into their most secret prayers, and into their experience of sin and forgiveness before the face of God. What an amazing thing. And we've been let into that secret place in David's life, not just for the satisfying of a carnal curiosity about someone else's downfall, but as a classroom of gospel experience and Christian living. Like the rest of Scripture, Psalm 51 should be like a mirror for your soul. Though our sins may be different, we, like David, are sinners. Though our time in history is different, we look to the same Messiah. We hope in the same gospel of sovereign grace and the good news of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And as we recognize those transcending similarities, we should ask ourselves as we come to Psalm 51, have I known a similar conviction of sin? Have I known a similar casting of myself on the mercy of God? A similar plea for the forgiveness and cleansing and heart renewal that can only come from God? And is there in my life a similar response of worship and joy and desire to see others forgiven too? We've covered all that in Psalm 51. But how do our lives look as we look into these verses? And then, how does this psalm end? It began with that personal plea for mercy. But what is the result of that mercy given to David? We've noted some responses to God's grace and mercy already in previous verses, but they culminate here. These last two verses of Psalm 51 are the gratitude after the guilt and the grace. And so from Psalm 51, verses 18 and 19, just three aspects of a life lived in response to the mercy of God. The first thing that we see is that in this extended prayer that is Psalm 51, we see in the last two verses a corporate prayer. A corporate prayer. Do good unto Zion. David is not simply praying, do good to me here. He has prayed that. Have mercy on me. He's already prayed that. Now his prayer becomes corporate. It broadens to the people of God. David moves from himself and his own situation to the people of God as a whole. His prayer is a corporate prayer. He prays for Zion. Boys and girls, that word is another word for the city of David, Jerusalem. Jerusalem with the temple that would eventually be built at its center. This is a picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in every age with the cross of Christ at its center the church and the people of God built on his blood and his righteousness. Make Zion prosper. Do good unto Zion. Why does David's focus turn outward? Why does it turn outward? Well, we could remember his position as king. He had great responsibility and accountability. In Psalm 69, we read these words, You know, God, uh, my folly, my guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. David was in a position where, boys and girls, he was to be an example to the people as their leader and as their king, and what had he done? Was he a good example when he sinned with Bathsheba? No, he was a terrible example. Was he a good example when he 
had Uriah murdered? Oh, it was an awful example. And, and this conviction of sin is, has been coming to David, and then he thinks of the people of God. He thinks of his position of influence and example. And he understood the corporate effect of sin, how one part of the body affects the other part of the body. And so as he thinks about his sin as the leader and as the king and as the example, his heart turns in prayer to the people of God and says, Oh, Lord, do good to them. I've done bad. But would you please do good to these people? Don't let my sin bring harm to them. You know, we often, I trust, feel the consequences and the misery of our own sin. But when the effects of our sins are visited on others, our children, our spouses, our friends, it's then that a Christian's heart really breaks. Do good, David prays. Do good to Zion. That's a prayer for general blessing. God, do what is truly good for your people. David wants to see good in other people's lives. Don't you want good for others? I hope not one of us would be here tonight and with someone in particular would be wanting harm and evil to them. Sinful pride likes to see others fail and fall. But we want to see good for our brothers and sisters. That's the general prayer, but specifically David goes on to pray, build up the walls. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. As the city was built and rebuilt later under Nehemiah, as we know, so too the upbuilding of the church is a good prayer for its edification, its building up in number and in maturity. So there's a literal and a figurative way that we could pray this, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Micah 7.11 says, the day for building your walls will come the day for extending your boundaries. There are ways that walls can be bad things. It's not hard to think how that could be the case, but there are many blessings associated with walls in the Scripture. There is a unity, a togetherness that comes with walls. We're together behind those walls. Psalm 122, 7, may peace be within your walls, peace and unity and prosperity within your palaces. If we are behind the walls of Jerusalem that are being built up, there's the sense as well of, of separation from the sins of the world. Not a complete separation from the world, 
though I'm sure we've all been tempted at one time or another just to get a few like-minded Christians together and move to Ecuador up in the mountains somewhere and just have a perfect place. We're in the world, but not of the world. And there are walls around Jerusalem. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Because outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. To build up the walls of Jerusalem has the sense of a holy identity for the people of God. Come out from them. Be holy, for I am holy. We all need to hear it, but young people too, you need to hear it. I don't know if you know the story. I was just going to say the siren call of the world, but maybe you don't know that language in Odysseus, the story of Odysseus, that Greek so when he was trying to go home and these sirens, these women were singing and they had such an alluring song that the, the sailors would, would automatically try to go to them and Odysseus puts wax in their ears and he has himself tied to the mast of the ship because he knows how powerful that attraction is, but it would lead to their destruction. That's the siren call of the world. And I know you're hearing it in all kinds of ways. And it sounds so good and so fun and so cool or whatever word you use now for what's hip or whatever. Lord, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Keep us and our children free from love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. There's no blessing outside the walls. There's no real life outside the walls. There's sin and misery and death. Build up the walls. Those walls are protection. Isaiah 49, 6, God says to his people, See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. But as we think about that, and particularly that note of protection, as we think about being blessed by walls and praying that the walls of Jerusalem would be built up in every good sense, remember Zechariah 2. Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. And I will be its glory within. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. May we know that surrounding presence of God in our lives. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He is the wall around you. If you're a Christian, he is the wall around us together as the body of Christ. And he is the glory within it. 
So a corporate prayer, a church prayer, a, a Psalm 122 prayer. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they, those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and my friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. In spite of David's sin, he prayed this. In spite of our sin, we pray it. Lord, do good unto Zion and build up her walls. And we do pray. And what we do what we can do and what we should do, I hope to be a blessing to the church in spite of our sin, but we always need to come back to what David knew and what he expresses here as well. Not just a corporate prayer, but a humble prayer. Verse 18. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. One English translation has, by your favor. This Greek word uh, that's uh, used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in your good pleasure, is the same word in Ephesians 1 verse 5. Having predestined us according uh, us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Or verse 9 in Ephesians 1, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Even as David prays for good, it's a humble prayer because he knows that God is the God of sovereign grace. He must do it. David is not presumptuous. He's humble. And he humbles himself under the sovereign good pleasure of God. This reminds us that salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. There ought to be no hint of pride in us or among us. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the guards stand watch in vain. No pride. If there's blessing, it's come from the good pleasure of God. But there's also then no despair or discouragement. Only God can do it, but God will do it for his people. Jesus will build his church. That is the good pleasure of God that has been revealed to us. His good pleasure from all eternity in his decree worked out in the works of creation and providence. The mystery that's been revealed to us of his good pleasure. So we read a verse like Luke 12, 32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the good pleasure of God to give you the kingdom, an unshakable kingdom. It's a humble prayer, recognizing God's sovereign grace and good pleasure. But lastly, this is a committed prayer, a prayer of great commitment in response to God's mercy and grace. Because David goes on to speak in verse 19 of sacrifices. Then there will be righteous sacrifices 
whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The NIV says righteous sacrifices. Perhaps some say it should be the sacrifices of the righteous. Both are true in Christ. Not sacrifice for sin. Not sacrifice for sin. We sang that in Psalm 40. David has already spoken of this. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. There's nothing that we can offer to God to pay the price of our sin. No good works, no suffering. Human beings can suffer so much. We don't say that lightly or flippantly, but no mere human suffering can pay the penalty of sin. And so this isn't a sacrifice for sin. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's where it needs to begin as we think about sacrifices. Broken for our sin and looking away from ourselves to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And then, see it seems contradictory, doesn't it? Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, verse 16. Verse 19, then there will be righteous sacrifices to delight you. So we have to understand the difference is not a sacrifice for sin. Anything we do, our whole lives, can only be acceptable to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, united to Christ. But then, in response to the grace of God, sacrificial language is appropriate. Now the question is, Was it appropriate for David and people in the Old Testament? But now this kind of language is inappropriate for us after Christ has come. No. No. It is strange language for many people. And when we sing Psalm 51, maybe when you've sung it, and here's this great song, you, you can... Enter into it when it's saying about, have mercy on me, O Lord, forgive my sin against you. You only have create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. All you New Testament Christians are saying, amen, 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 all the way along. And then you get to the last verse and it says, bulls will be offered on the altar. And you just go, what? Why do I have to sing that? What is going on here? This is why we shouldn't be singing the Psalms anymore. There's some good things, but that's Old Testament. So many people experience that Psalm this, that way. But we have to remember that the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, draws on Old Testament imagery to teach and preach and proclaim the gospel to Christians in our age as well. This sacrificial language is Christian imagery. Not just Old Testament. It's Christian imagery. We understand that in other places, in other ways. Are we too sophisticated and too modern to refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? 
I don't know any Christian today that wouldn't just say, yeah, that's Jesus. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're used to that. But I could imagine people that say, what Lamb of God? What are you talking about? Because all that imagery draws on the Old Testament. But New Testament believers love to speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God because we know what it means. It helps us to understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is both the great high priest who offers the sacrifice and himself the sacrifice that is offered. We use that language readily and appreciatively with Jesus. And so why not with this aspect of our lives? Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Don't don't bring one of the bulls from your farm to church. That's not the point. We have to understand the imagery. Revelation 1, the last book of the New Testament. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. First Peter 2, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. This is applied to Christians today. This is who you are in a certain way. In one way, there are no priests anymore. There's one mediator, one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. But in another sense, it's the priesthood of all believers. First Peter 2, 5, you like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5, you see, is, is the comment from God's own word on his word. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. What does that mean? You are a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And how wonderful it is that as we offer things to God through Jesus, they are acceptable to him. They are pleasing to him. He delights in them. What are those spiritual sacrifices? Your mind has probably already gone there. What is this sacrificial language that applies to my life today as a Christian? Well, Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Your whole life, even your body. I think that's the point there. If it's even your body, it's certainly your soul. Everything about you. Your worship on Sunday, but your life from Monday to Saturday, your work in the office or at home, your work at school, whatever you do, living sacrifice offered to God in light of what he has done for you. And that sacrificial language is used, again, very helpfully in Hebrews 13. It fills out 
the idea of sacrifice with two specifics. Hebrews 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of, what? Praise. The fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Hebrews 13 is a commentary on Psalm 51, verse 19. Here are two practical sacrifices that continue to apply to a Christian. As you offer your whole life as a sacrifice to God, what does that mean? Well, a sacrifice of praise continually from my lips. To speak the excellence of a person, that's that word praise. And this praising God with what we say, formally and informally, in worship and in life, it's sacrifice. We offer God the sacrifice of our words flowing out of our hearts. Hosea 14.2, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Literally, the Hebrew says there, so we will render the calves of our lips. Bulls on your altar. The calves of our lips, an offering to God. Do you think of that when you worship? Do you really think of it? This is my sacrifice to God. Or when you speak at home, what's coming out of our mouths? Would some of the things that we've said, would we dare to come and offer that as a sacrifice to God? It's the blind, and the crippled, and the blemish. Oh, the sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess his name, to say about God what God says about himself in Scripture, to always agree with the Bible about the name of God, everything about his person and his character and his acts, and to confess that not only with sincere belief, but also a saving trust in the Lord, because we know that our words need to be washed We need to be forgiven so much. If a man is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man. And notice in Hebrews 13, when should we do this? Most English translations say continually, to continually offer. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Not just once in a while, but continually to think of the words that we speak, that what comes from our mouths is an offering to God. But the Greek here is more explicit. It's not just the Greek word for always, but it's two words that are literally translated through all. Through all offer the sacrifice of praise. Through all the things that you go through. That word through seems to have the idea of struggle and difficulty and pain through it all praising and acknowledging the love and goodness and wisdom of God. Not just on the Lord's day in worship, all of life is an offering of praise to the Lord, a thank offering to Him. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then verse 16 in Hebrews 13 continues the sacrificial language. 
Don't forget to do good and to share. When you're praising and worshiping, there's a potential pitfall, something that can be ignored or overlooked. Along with praise and worship, there must be good deeds and sharing. These are just the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? He who loves God must love his brother also. We have good works to do. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have things to share with others, material things, spiritual things. God doesn't give us things just to keep it all for ourselves, but to be shared. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. They met needs that were around them. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Beware of lopsided sacrifices. Only worship without good works. Sunday sacrifices. Beloved, there are sacrifices every day of the week. But why the language of sacrifice for these things? Why should praise be called a sacrifice? Why should good works be called a sacrifice? Well, it reminds us that they are always offered ultimately to God. Not so that other people can see it. Not so that we can feel better about ourselves. I was listening to the radio again one morning this week, and they were talking about giving around Christmas time, and, and the, the talk show host said, oh yeah, I, I really like doing that. It really uh, deals with my guilt. I just feel so much better when I do it. That's not giving. That's buying. It's just what he can get out of it. God-oriented. All of our praise, God-oriented. Our good works, ultimately, God-oriented. For his glory, not for ours. It's sacrifice because it's costly. David said, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Worship requires effort, public worship, family worship, body, heart, and mind sacrifices. It's not an easy, natural thing to do. It doesn't just happen. And doing good is costly. Sharing can be costly. We'll end up losing things time and energy and resources, there's a sacrificial aspect to it. If we never know a sacrificial aspect to our doing good, what are we doing more than others? Sacrificial doing good. And it's a sacrifice because it's gospel motivated. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you offer your bodies a living sacrifice. 
grace. It's in response to God's grace to us that there would be righteous sacrifices of praise and of good works, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Psalm 51 describes the mercy of God, mercies of God and ends with the righteous sacrifices of gratitude and praise. And so these last two verses of Psalm 51 are a prayer that every Christian can pray in every age of the church. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar.